You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. Since 2009, HRN podcasts have been exploring the wide world of food, beverage, and agriculture. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org. Well, what a show we have for you today, folks. Um, Every show is special, but this one is extra special to me, particularly because today we are joined by my very best friend in the whole world, Alexis Arvidsson Needham. Alexis, hello. Hi. (laughs) It's so nice to be here with you. We have known each other for a very long time. You're my oldest friend, not in age, but... um, (laughs) Because Bobby is my oldest friend, <laughs> but definitely my oldest friend in terms of like, just we've known each other for a lot, like so long that saying the actual number of years makes me very, feel very old myself. How long it's have we known each other? True. Like, I mean, I know I was at your high school graduation and your senior prom. <laughs> I know. So we've known each other for 20 years. It's and a long time. I'm, it's a long time and it's been a great time. Mm. Best. And different times, right? That's the thing about like long friendships. Think yeah. of all the different weird meandering times we've had. It's true. Yep. Here and there. Yeah. And I know you too. Hi, Alexis. I haven't know. seen you in a long time. Oh my gosh, it's so good to see you. You too. Really wonderful. Bobby, you're so cute. Um, so Alexis, you are so many things. You are a beautiful human. You are a fantastic, amazing mother. You're a wonderful wife. You're a great friend and you're a healer and an acupuncturist and you practice Chinese medicine and, um, you know everything. Honestly, if I ever have any question about an ache or pain or even emotional imbalance in my body, I immediately turn to you and your wisdom is just like, It's so powerful. And so like, I feel like so, so lucky to have you in my life for that reason and many others, but that's such a special quality of you. So how did you come to want to be a healer? Ooh, I mean, that's a packed bag, but I will, (laughs) I think there's a lot of roads that led me there. Definitely, you know, some of what we'll talk about today has been like a fresher interpretation of how I got here. I think the story that I've that I've kind of worked with since I decided to switch from the fashion industry to acupuncture, healing, energy work um, is post 9-11 in New York City. And just feeling like what would be the point in a way of continuing down this fashion track? I was actually in advertising and I just you know, I mean, obviously I was living in New York City. It was a huge crisis time and I wanted something I could do with my hands. I wanted a skill that was valuable and I was drawn to energy medicine as a kind of like side hobby. And I just, I made the, I made the decision that it was something like whether if, if the city imploded and if like life as we knew it went off the rails, I could help and I could be part of yeah. like a solution. And so that's how mm, I did it. That's beautiful. And it's really, inter- it's compelling. I, I mean, I spoke with someone recently who 
was talking about um, their instincts after 9-11 was to join the army. And I know, Bobby, your instinct after 9-11 was to get involved and help with, you know, victims' families and with firefighters and first responders and stuff like that. And I don't know, it's just fascinating to me always to think about like um, people's different instincts, whether to run toward or to like run away. And I mean, maybe we'll kind of circle back towards the end of the episode and just see where we've come. But the instinct to run toward crisis and and to be a helper is so, um, it's really just so special. So um, yeah, I think that's very interesting. But today we are going to be talking about really a specific kind of grief, which is ambiguous grief, which Alexis, you mentioned this term and then Bobby and I were speaking about it and I wasn't even really aware of it as like a, a kind of a real t- kind of grief and a real term. Um, but Bobby, you had mentioned that you were reading a bit, a book that you had about ambiguous grief. And maybe before we kind of jump into Alexis's story, you could kind of just describe to our listeners what ambiguous grief really means. Good idea. Um, if this book was written actually probably about tw- 20 years ago. It's called Ambiguous Loss, Learning to Live with Unresolved Grief. And the author's name is Pauline Boss, B-O-S-S. And she's actually has a website as well, ambiguousloss.com. But the concept is there's two different types of ambiguous loss. One is when somebody's physically absent, but psychologically present. And an example of that would be that if somebody's missing, like we once had a, a wonderful guest on our show whose mom had been missing. She was just missing. Um, divorce is an example of that. Adoption is a really good example. So you know that somebody's out there physically, but psychologically they're not present. And we've even had guests on our show that talk about immigration. And that's another really good example where your your world, your life that you left is out there, but it's not, they're not psychologically present. The mm. other kind of um, ambiguous loss is psychologically absent and physically present. An example of that would be you know, um, dementia or mental illness or having a family member that has addiction. Um, Often, you know, in separation of a parent, you know, where they're there, but they're really not there. So Mm. aging parents is another good example, or even somebody that has a catastrophic illness because they're just, they're there, but they're not there psychologically. So really what happens with ambiguous loss is that you can't resolve things. It's it's, um, not acknowledged by the community. People don't really understand it. So you can't really talk about it. Um, And you're in a state of limbo. It's kind of a confusion and a difficulty moving ahead. It kind of freezes grief. So that's, that's a kind of good synopsis, I think, of what it is. So I think, what do you think yours is, Alexis? Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been chewing on it. And I actually, you know, at first pass, it's, it's type one, the, the, physically absent but psychologically there's there's an awareness of my father's presence you know but when I scratch a bit more there's a lot of questions I have about his mental health and about addiction and and I wonder mm-hmm. if it's type two that has led to a type one and you know this right. kind of gray area between them both yeah so tell yeah. us more about your story oh well uh <laughs> uh you know it's like so it's so um intense for me to talk about because I spent most of my life just not like not even a lot like a lot maybe not even knowing that I could approach feeling grief around this relationship 
feeling like, you know, I'm healthy and I have like a beautiful life, even as, you know, as a child, um, a mother who's so present, like all of these things. So asking for more or, or like pointing to the thing I didn't have and, and really longed for felt like just not, not what a good girl would do. So yeah, so it's, it's come up in this very, um, fractionated way where <laughs> through, I mean, obviously through work with the therapist and my husband and just drawing these lines where there's a blurriness between things that I, that I'm holding Kyle to and actually recognizing that there are these like really deep pains from my loss of relationship or loss of love with my dad. Hmm. <sighs> so what I hear you saying is that in the present, in your relationship, Kyle's your husband, right? Husband, wonderful yeah. husband. That in that relationship, you notice the absence of connection when you were a child. So the present is relating back to the past. Yes. I mean, I'm just noticing. I think it's probably always been happening. <laughs> but, mm, but yeah, I mean, it's it's really starting to illuminate how um, how things that I always have just said out loud or told, told myself are okay actually really weren't okay. It wasn't okay to, to not have a dad show up to not have a dad know any of my any of my life any of my friends names any like never mm -hmm. ever show never know a teacher of mine you know this very this very like um ephemeral creature that you know I, yeah I have a dad you know and I know him but not a person that I'm close with in my life knows him you know that's so strange you know when we were talking about ambiguous loss, Bobby, when you were describing it to us, I think it's just such an important thing, A, to talk about in general, because it's one of those kind of disenfranchised forms of grief. I think we think of grief in a very linear way. Somebody that you care about or love passes away, and then you feel this thing called grief. And then you can feel it for a certain amount of time. You go through the stages or whatever, and then it's gone and it flies away, right? And this is like this very neat idea that we have of grief that fits into a very specific package. But there's so much more, obviously, in how we process death and loss. But there's also so many more things that cause us grief, right? Um, uh, relationship problems of all kinds are like a huge one. And having a parent that is still alive but has not been present in your life is a huge grief, not only because of the impact it's had on your life, but also because kind of what you're describing. And I want to, you know, you to tell our listeners more about your specific kind of story in a minute, but like feeling like you're not meant to really speak about it or that you're not entitled to feel pain over something that's happening to you. Because, you know, I think we conscious people try to, um, like go through the world with some type of, um, you know, awareness that, that we have privilege, but it doesn't mean that you can't also feel bad about your own situation. At you know what I mean? Time. That you can't also, like both things can be true, right? So acknowledge your privilege, the things you're thankful for, the fact that like life can be much more brutalizing to other people. And then it's also okay to feel bad about your own situation. And I think like that's the other component to this kind of disenfranchised grief and pain is that it's like, you're not even like allowed to feel bad about it because like you don't have it that bad because your parent didn't die because they didn't beat you up because of all these things that didn't happen. It's like, then you're just more depressed about not knowing where to put your feelings. So Alexis, can you just tell us a little bit about kind of how 
the relationship with your dad like progressed from when you were a child and then you know just what was that like your parents were divorced at a young age correct yeah my parents divorced before I was two they had a volatile marriage I know that and um you know physically volatile and so that was like in the room in some way and my dad was definitely a very very aggressive person I mean I'd seen him be aggressive with my uh, who eventually became my my half-brother and you know he was the kind of dad who like if we disappointed him he wanted us like backs against the wall like like he wanted to like yell at us for like an hour, you know, and just like have us stand straight and like listen to him. And, you know, I wasn't there all the time. I was there so rarely that it was, it was very like shocking to kind of be in that world. And also as a very young person, my body started to to kind of like revolt against it. Once he yelled at me, Mm. I can't can't totally remember what for, but he once yelled at me and my whole body broke out in hives. Like I was maybe like wow. six or seven and my, just a complete physical, like immune response. Yeah. So it was like, ah, yeah. and in some way, you know, that was, it scared, it scared him so much actually, which was a protective mm. layer and an interesting strategy for my body to find. But, um, yeah. Yeah. So he, he had, you know, he was a, he was a tricky guy and he was also just, when I would see him so incredibly like verbally praising of me, which was very confusing, you know, it was obvious that he like, or at least showed me more love than he showed his wife, his wife's two kids and, you know, Mm -hmm. always like put me up on a pedestal and, but you know, it was these like one weekend a month thing. And then like, we'd skip a couple months and then, you know, maybe we'd see each other again, or we'd expect to see each other again, and he wouldn't come and it'd be too long of a ride, or someone was sick, or, you know, a Mm. million different excuses. We lived an hour away from each other, which, you know, now having children, that seems like nothing. (laughs) Drive across the country for them. But, but it was that hour was like, you know, always, always looming, like, you know, your mother moved too far away. And, and it's just, you know, a big hassle. And it really breaks into our weekend and our resting time and all of these things. That, so it, it was just a big, confusing mess, honestly, like, so yeah. much so that a lot of it is, has been kept under a lid, so tightly sealed, so well protected, yeah. so that I could survive, you know, so I could do my life. Yeah, of course. And it's hard. It's funny, I was just writing a chapter earlier, like working on this chapter of this book I'm working on um, and talking about my own experiences with my dad and my stepmom, who is such a mean person and like tapping into those feelings of like just that uncomfortability. And it's funny because I was like just writing this actually before we jumped on, like remembering I'm like, I felt so depressed in that time. I was so depressed and so uncomfortable. But like when you're that age, you don't even know what depression is. You know what I mean? No one's talked to you yet about like what depression is or what these feelings even are. So going through these kind of like really uncomfortable, alienating, really like just inappropriate experiences as a child and then also not having the language for it or like anyone to describe to you like what you may be experiencing or what you're experiencing is like very like cruel and it's like harmful and traumatic like 
it's just like when we think back to that, like what a weird experience for no, a child. What happens is that it the child internalizes it. So instead of realizing this is weird outside of me, it's the unworthiness, the yeah. myth of unworthiness that develops. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that's for sure in my, in my personal myth and there's something, you know, about in, in the, being the child of divorce too, going into, going from one world to another world, traveling solo between worlds. Yeah. You start to think, well, I must be able to handle this because I'm doing it. You know, it's everyone, you know, I mean, and it's, yeah, and it's, I've talked to my mom about this at length because she, I mean, his home was also just so like, so atrocious, like such a mess, so hard to be in, mm. in a, in like a physically un, like filthy way. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I'm always like, how did you let me go there? And it was, it was court ordered. Like there was nothing she could even do, which is a whole other yeah. craziness, yeah. you know? Yeah. It's like, it's so wild. Yeah. yeah. It's so wild. And just what to like pinpoint what kind of you were just saying, like, I guess I can handle this. Like, right. Like you also don't have the language as a kid to be like, no, you know, like, no, like I, like now, like if someone asks you to just do something that even, you know, forget making you uncomfortable. You you just kind of don't want to do. You can be like, no, thank you. You know, I don't want to. And the power of being an adult and being able to make your own choices is like profound. And we don't even realize, you know what I mean? Like it's Except so- when you're like, an adolescent and then you have to scream it. The only way to do right. it is to scream it. Right. But until you really move out of your parents' home, you don't really have the full wherewithal to say no to things that make you feel uncomfortable mm. or you don't know that you do. And like, it's just it's really, really incredible sometimes to think how we all made it out of the 1990s divorce parent situation. <laughs> it's fucked up, right? It's like crazy. It's what a, you're saying about going back and forth between houses. It's I don't know. Do divorced children still do this? Well, I mean, anybody that I'm like a contemporary with who's separated there, there's a big trend towards nesting where actually the, ch mm. the children or child stay in the home and the parents switch. Which I there you go. Couldn't imagine my parents ever doing that. Seems <laughs> not not possible. But. Oh my god! <laughs> so there's more of a consciousness, right? There's so much more of a consciousness. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Now. Yeah. You know? Totally. Yeah. Alexis, you said something in your pre-interview that I really liked. You said, "I love so much about him without ever having much of him." Mm. What were some of the things that you loved about your dad? Oh gosh, he like he. I mean. He's just, he is when he's well and when he's present, he's so big. He's so like funny. He's his humor. He's like, just, I don't know the way he speaks. He speaks like directly to my heart, which is so fucked up and crazy, you know? Yeah. I mean, well, you were both there when we got married. So I can, yeah. I can say this and you'll know when we got married on the beach in Tulum in this beautiful ceremony you know, he took me on the beach and we walked on the beach and he said, you know, I, I don't know if everyone here is going to feel what you've just given us, but this is a gift you've given us to be in a circle. You know, I mean, he just got it. And, and, yeah. <laughs> and just, you know, I felt like when, when he's, when he's with me or when he has been with me, I'm, I'm like, he's my person, which is, which is really just hard. It really is. I confusing. know. I, so I feel confusing. similarly when I think about John, 
because he was also very violent and aggressive and fucked up and weird and did bad things. And I, I was obsessed with him. You know what I mean? And he also spoke right to my heart. I really like, like can relate to that so much. I mean, he is your heart. You know what I mean? He's 50% of like, there's, there's a thing that was, you know, a familial binding sometimes is just so intense. And also that like constant desire to want that person to like accept you, you know, like of all the approval we seek through people our whole lives, that's really where it all comes from. You know, you want that person to, to think you're the best. You want to connect with them. You always want to believe that they get you above everyone else. And in some way they do. And in some way they never kind of knew you at all, which is so weird. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And, and, you know, I think actually that really was so clarifying, Zara, those words, because I think my dad, at least, at least he spoke towards thinking I was the best, but now you know, as an adult woman, I realized I actually needed him to and want, wanted and, and still want him to love me anyway. Like love me when I'm not yeah. the best and love me when I'm totally like a shitty teenager and love me when I'm like a hot mess or when I don't get the scores on the SATs or when I, you know, all the things that, you know, are no, like normal. <laughs> I, would love, like, I just want to love, be loved for being me, you know? Of course. Yeah. I mean, my dad was the same way. Like he really like didn't always have unconditional love. It was actually kind of conditional. And if I hurt his feelings or if I said something wrong, he wouldn't talk to me for years. And then, I mean, where do we go from there? Right. Into being like, I can only be loved if I'm perfect. Yeah. And then, or testing people to be like, let me show you how imperfect I can be. You know what I mean? Like it's this very weird fucked up thing that happens. And I don't know if these people understand the power they wield when they decide to like become parents, but like, it's really wild because it like this kind of behavior, like while to that, I don't know if they know, you know what I mean? The power that they hold, that's all. And it sticks with people for their whole lives. And this like lifelong, um, not you're trying to untangle because someone just couldn't be cool. You know, they couldn't handle their stuff. They couldn't think about. And the thing I think that's, you know, kind of poisonous about it is that what we do is we think like they couldn't be cool because we weren't good enough. Right. But in reality, it's because they just are on another tip. They were not able to meet the incredible task of being a parent and being selfless in that way and of practicing unconditional love. But you have to tell yourself that like 8 billion times before you even get it a little. Yeah. You know, because it's a relational wound, you know, that's really what it is. And it impacts relationships there forward mm-hmm. until we can do the work, you know, recognize and realize that it, it wasn't us. It wasn't mm-hmm. us. It wasn't you guys, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and so relationship helps us heal actually if we have a good partner like you do Alexis you mm-hmm. you know in relationship you can see where the wounds pop up but together you work on it and then you can heal the wounds together yeah yeah I mean also I'm 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 always kind of I get curious about you know it didn't happen in a vacuum for them either right my dad or your dad Z like it 
Yeah. Like what is the lineage that led to that? And what is the cultural, like the vacuum in the culture that hasn't supported because, because it is, I mean, now I have children. And so I mm. feel the weight of what it is to be a parent. And actually that has been the thing that's helped me have a boundary with this relationship with my father. Mm. But to be a parent is so, it, 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 it doesn't feel like the right setup that it should just be two people raising yeah. kids. I mean, we need a whole, we need the village and it, yeah. You know, and I wonder if I'd had, if we'd had a village, if he'd had a village, if I'd had a village, like, would he have been, you know, those gaps would have been filled in in different ways and he could have been held up in different ways too, you know? So I I hold that. It's very true. And the, you know, the structure, Bobby, obviously, you know this better than Alexis and I know some of it. And we also know a world that looks a bit different now, right? Which is wonderful. Um, and it's not holistically different, but I think there are, you know, ways in which people are moving more towards just better parenting. And like you're saying, and I feel the same way, honestly, about like romantic relationships, right? Like this is more of a community event (laughs) than two people. Like it doesn't, you know, the more we like make it just about just two people, the harder it is. But yeah, I think about when our parents grew up and Bobby, obviously, you know, this like is different. There wasn't as much talking. There wasn't as much acceptance around people even having problems or being fucked up. I mean, you know, with with my dad, he was in a school for boys and he was like abused and beaten and God knows what else happened to him in his life. So sometimes I think the fact that he even had any capacity to be nice to me or even like stay alive. So was you talking about intergenerational amazing. trauma. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. You know, and it's it's crazy to think that um, if we had just in America had a bit more of like a loving society, like, you know, um, what it would just look like for people and then the ripple effect of that, right? Like, what are them, do those people go on to do and what can those people go on to do? And if you don't hold this trauma in your body and you never had it, like, what could have you done with that time that you spent hating yourself or abusing yourself or, you know what I mean? Could have you spent it learning something new or like, be, it's just so wild to think about how much it actually means to stop trauma from happening to other people you know to give them that freedom of their time and their on this earth yeah yeah well Lex one thing I wanted to talk about in terms of food which occurred to me Mm. is that you know um I think sometimes we think that people who are community builders and you are such a community-based person and like such a lover of like bringing people together and a great celebrator and a voracious and excited, beautiful. You're my favorite person to eat with and to cook for because you love everything so much. Um, But I think sometimes we think people, and of course, people who grew up with that in their family can also be this way. But I think so often people who grew up like maybe like more lonely, as I know the three of us all grew up a bit lonely and sad, cultivate that in their adult life so can you just talk to us a little bit about what it feels like to be that kind of person or where that kind of instinct Mm. came from and when you noticed it yeah I can totally I mean it's a whole other whole other chapter of my life but in high school I had a boyfriend whose family they had five children he was the oldest and his mother stayed home and she would cook every day and she would ask, she would ask me what I wanted for dinner. <laughs> oh my <laughs> mind God. was blown, you know? <laughs> I mean, and I could say like shrimp scampi 
every week and she would make it, you know, it was just, Oh my God. Oh my gosh. They were just, they were so welcoming and they were just, I mean, I went on vacations with them, but really it was the eating. That's when I, I woke up to food and I woke up to gathering around a table and just how much fun it could be to be with a family. You know, I kind of had this idea that I was a teenager. So, you know, I was like, family's lame. I had two younger siblings yeah. at my mom's house and this whole crazy situation with my dad's. I was like, eh, family's really not for me. That's not where it's at. It's friends. You yeah. know? And then I went, you know, got this boyfriend and was like, oh my God, family is so much fun. <laughs> oh my God. Were they Italian? Yes, they were Italian. <laughs> oh my God. That's amazing. So that's where it went. I feel like nobody loves a delicious pasta as much as you. And even oh. when you like talk about eating pasta, it's so sexual. It's so like sexy. You're like, oh, she's like a delicious, you're like a good like twirl with like a fabulous like ragu. It's just like so exciting to hear you talk about eating, I'm particularly pasta. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> I do love pasta. Yeah. Oh, I know. Me too. Um, and we've eaten a lot of it together. But I remember like when we started becoming really close friends in our early 20s, that we would have these like delicious Sunday dinners, which oh. were thing which were put together by you. Like you were the like one who championed these Sunday night dinners. And we'd make like delicious baked pasta and garlic bread oh and like, meatballs God. and watch The Sopranos. And ugh. so much so, fun. <laughs> so much fun. So much right. Fun. And like. Yes. Ever since, I mean, now you live upstate and you have for like the past decade, but whenever I come up, it's always like kind of focused around like what, what are we gonna fabulous eat? thing. Yes. Yeah, what are we going to eat or make? And we always make the most delicious things and then uh. just sit there in ecstasy. Like, and one more thing I want to say about your eating style, which like really matches with mine and something I think I learned from you because I did not grow up like this, is to sit a- around the table for a long time and not clean up right away mm-hmm. and like nibble at things out of the pot with your fork. Oh you know God. what I mean? That's a favorite. <laughs> which I love. That's, that's like the <laughs> way to eat. And it just like to me actually is like signifies like really loving the people mm-hmm. you're with, right? Like it's such like a holy way to mm. eat dinner oh my gosh I love that reflection it's so yummy isn't it sweet to think about right so just like good. sitting around here like, oh one more bite and you just like make a perfect <laughs> bite and like nobody looks at you funny you grab a salad with your hand oh and like shove it in your mouth best and, you ask some amazing question like what is the last bite you ever want to have and oh yeah more. exactly more yeah fun. it's like real richness and I think you know for people who have had like I mean for anyone but I know for people who have had like pain and really like felt the absence around family and around connection like to have connection like that around a dinner table and like such a safe and loving space has been like such an important part of my my life and I know yours and something that I completely like really sunk into when I met you mm-hmm. so you caught it from your Ita- hot Italian boyfriend <laughs> and then I then caught it from you because like it's definitely something that like became a huge part of my life when mm-hmm. we became friends you know I've been using the word antidote a lot I love that word mm-hmm. and you guys have developed you have found an antidote to your early trauma and mm. to your early loneliness and lacking. It's beautiful. I love that. I, I mean, yeah, I really love the reframing of, I mean, I had, I guess I hadn't thought about the meals and the eating as, you know, the, the, and the gathering as a, I, I guess I hadn't drawn that line between them. And I really, 
so good to have a line between them because now that can the medicine can work more consciously. Yeah. Well, it's like I'm thinking about you sitting in the car, like having to go on the way to your dad's house and feeling like, you know, unwanted or like the drive was weird and going into this uncomfortable house and having no decisions. And then fast forward, you know, 30 years later to being this beautiful adult woman with her own home and making new memories and having these choices. And like, this is how I want to actually deal with this, which is that I want to make like a lovely warm life for myself where I have the choice of who I want to spend time with and Mm -hmm. who to fill my heart with because you know it like doesn't take away the awful pain and absence of like child of your childhood trauma and of like just the trauma of living with a parent who is absent from your life that you wish it was different Mm -hmm. but like it is another it's just like a blanket right it doesn't make it not cold outside but it can keep you warmer Mm -hmm. yeah so good yeah Mm -hmm. I mean, so, you know, your father, you mentioned, I mean, I know this, but had a stroke several years ago. And how did that change the relationship, if at all? Well, it did, you know, it changed it for a moment. We were, we were not talking at the time for, you know, you know, there's always, there's always a reason why we weren't talking, but we had not been talking for about 18 months. And I had, both of my children were born. So it was, it was really painful, but also yeah, it was really painful. Um, they were too young for to know, you know, they were too young to ask questions yet. But I, w- I knew, like, at some point, I'm going to have to explain what's going on with this relationship. Yeah. Um, but he had this stroke and I, you know, my, his wife called me and I went to the hospital and he came out of it, one side pretty badly paralyzed. But he had a, he had you know, a lucidity in terms of just recognizing what was important in life. Mm. It was short lived, but it was quite beautiful. You know, he, there was a time where he, they came up to Kingston and they, and he was on my bed. I was giving him acupuncture. I was giving him acupuncture for his brain, for the stroke. And he, and well, something else I think that's, that's important or interesting to notice is he and I were almost never alone. You know, his wife, was always like omnipresent. We never could have a dinner alone, a meal alone. I mean, these, these drives were like, that was actually what I looked forward to because we were, it was the Mm. only time we were alone. And so even as an adult woman, we were never alone. I mean, so, so he was on, on my bed, I was giving him acupuncture and she was outside. Even that would be rare. She'd be hovering around, you know? Wow. And he grabbed my hand and he said, I am so sorry. I love you so much. And I'm so sorry. And like, Mm. you know, that was really, it was (laughs) really beautiful. So, I mean, no, there was no elaboration. There was no time for elaboration and that's fine. But, you know, he went back to his really toxic environment and life and, and like pile of choices that he's made. And that person who was lucid for those, you know, I don't know, a couple of weeks to a month or so, he's not, he's not here anymore, you know? And mm. so it's, it's been so rough. a series of ups and downs. <sighs> I wanted to add, you said something for another interesting thing in your uh, pre-interview about a dream relationship of his dying. Mm. Could you tell us more about that? I thought that was so poignant. Yeah. Well, I mean, I, 
as I said, he speaks to my heart and I've always felt like he really, he has these moments where he's really riding the same frequency that I am. Like, you know, when I think about like born from the same star kind of a vibe, you know, Mm -hmm. like, and, and so I just imagine that it will be really easy to be in contact with his soul, you know, like, like that, that's Mm. the part of us that has connected. Right. And I, and I just imagine that when he has shed like the weight of his body, when he's not earthbound and bound, bound to a human body, you know, (laughs) it sounds kind of out out there and wild, but that's how I, that's my framework for, for existence. And I just feel like, a lot of healing can happen what you know through through dreams through meditation through just like that i can work with that material so much more easily and there's something about the cumbersomeness of him being in a body and being in this like toxicity that that like really like blocks me from penetrating i love that i think that's beautiful it is beautiful it means it's possible healing is is possible and yeah. i even especially when somebody dies when they actually die and lose their body yeah. I recently, um, we had, Bobby had showed me something a couple of years ago and then I saw a similar thing that happened in Japan and then a similar thing that happened last year with 9-11 and it was like a phone booth. The original thing was a phone booth in the middle of the Redwood Forest. It wasn't connected to anything. And then the other one was in Japan, like on the top of a hill, again, not connected. And the 9-11 was a phone booth in Brooklyn, like looking at the World Trade Center. And it was just a phone you could pick up and just talk to your loved one who has passed away. And so the other day I was passing a vintage shop in my neighborhood and I picked up an old rotary phone and I like put it on my table and now I pick it up and I talk to my dad. Oh my God. And like, it's just something to think about and like being able to like talk to people. Uh. It's freeing. I mean, I'm not telling you you need to do this, but it is freeing in a way of like talking to someone but they're not there. You know what I mean? And I think it's something people can do, even if they have someone who's technically still alive, even like, you know, maybe that sounds crazy, but like there's people who I've like broken up with or, you know, like have loved and have things I want to say to them. And like, I'm not going to, Mm. I'm not going to call them. I'm not going to write them a letter, but sometimes I just want to say it. And so there's something in like the having a, a phone or a, a something that you can pick up and just talk to. I it's mean, kind of cool. It's so you and beautiful. <laughs> cool. <laughs> the interesting thing though, is that, you know, people have different feelings. And as you said, and different views of what happens after we die. And even if you don't have a view as you do, Alexis, where this, the spirit is released, you're talking to the internalized relationship with that person. So even if it's not that, which I, also understand what you're saying, but if it's the healing through the internalized relationship with the person is what you're saying, Zara, like your voice may not go out to the ex-boyfriend, but it's yeah. healing that part inside of you, mm. that relationship. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. Lex, you also had mentioned inheritance potatoes, <laughs> and I thought this was so beautiful and such a beautiful way of putting it and also sounds so delicious. I can't believe I've never had these potatoes. I've never but made can them? can you just tell us? No. Can you just tell us a little bit about these amazing inheritance potatoes? Yes. I mean, they are oh, definitely my favorite food from childhood. Um, my dad would get up he would get up very early to make them. And while he would get up early, I would sleep late. So I don't know which one was actually early or late. Yeah. But, 
<laughs> um, he would get up and he would slice them all super thin. I think he would peel his actually. I'm not a potato peeler, but I think he would peel yeah. his and then slice them super thin. And I mean, close to paper thin, but with a, with a, wow. a knife, I'm, I'm use a mandolin, but, um, yeah. and then tons of butter. So butter's in the pan and then each yeah. layer is spiraled around the pan and spiraled so that it truly, so they hold each other. Cause the idea is you really yeah. want to be able to flip it whole, which is challenging. Right. We don't often do it, but yeah, you get these. And so you start with the top, you start, start with the lid on a little salt and pepper, of course. And then you take the lid off and then you, so after the potatoes have cooked through with the lid on from steaming, then they start to get this just amazing crisp. I mean, if you're a French fry person, this is, this is like my answer to French fries at home. Like, you know, who who can really make French fries? It's like, it's just perfection. It's potatoes. It's crispy. It's like got a caramelization and it's buttery Mm. and and it's (laughs) really And that sounds so delicious. It Yum. Is, and I really. know one thing about you is that you love a potato very much. As as do I. I love a potato. Yep. Yep. I've passed wow. it down. Layla loves a potato too. It's her favorite oh. food, my daughter. Yeah. So cute. Um, so as we kind of draw to a closing each episode, we always ask everyone the same question, mm-hmm. which is that if you could have told your younger self something at the beginning of this grief experience, wherever that kind of begins for you, um, what would that advice to your younger self be? You know, in this moment, gosh, I mean, in this moment, my instinct is that I would, that I would tell my younger self, it's, it's okay to say you don't want to be here. It's okay to speak up and and say that this doesn't feel good and it's okay mm-hmm. to really ask for help finding another way mm. to either have this relationship or to to protect yourself from an environment that feels really unsafe yeah yeah that's good advice mm. i i would take that advice for myself yeah. as well to externalize the feelings <clears throat> instead of internalize them yeah, yeah. absolutely right and then the second thing that we like to talk about at the end of every show. And this is very important. And being that we, we do have the potential for this to actually happen. And uh, I'm sure we will. Oh yeah. You're (laughs) you're going to come too. If we were going to share a meal together, if we're going to make a meal together right now, like this evening, what Mm. would we all bring? I know what I'm going to bring. I'll start. start. I'm going to bring baked ziti with (gasps) vodka sauce. Oh my God. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I knew it. Done. Cheesy big ziti, cheesy big with vodka sauce. All right. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, I mean, we have to have like a really good greens situation if we're gonna have cheesy big greedy big ziti. <laughs> yes. Big <laughs> greedy ziti. <laughs> so, I mean, do we want to go like garlicky, olive oily, like sautéed greens? Mm, or do we want to take good. like the kale from the garden and make like a nice lemony, like super simple salt, pepper, olive oil vibe. Those are my like two go-to super simple, but the perfect, perfect complement to this CD. All right. I, I have, have to have a green. I have an yes. entree. Ah, go ahead, Bobby. I've been making chicken cacciatore lately. 
Oh, and I really love it. And, it, oh and my gosh. our friends have a farm. So I'd be getting all these peppers, <gasps> so many peppers. So peppers and mushrooms yeah. and onions and tomatoes and l- tons of garlic and vinegary, mm. just lovely vinegary, mm. creamy kind of sauce would go well with our whole dinner. What do you think? I love it. I love Sounds it. But so can fantastic. I make one request, Bobby? Can you yes, also sure. bring your spanakopita that I can heat up on the side? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, so the next day, because... You bet. <laughs> the best. The oh. best spanakopita. It's Truly. a deal. It's a deal. When Truly. are we doing this? Let's put it on the calendar right now. I'm down anytime. <laughs> we are all due for a hangout. Yeah. Alex, this was just so special to spend this time with you. And thank you for being so vulnerable and talking about something that is just so like omnipresent in your life and just like, you know, unresolved in a lot of ways. And it's like brave to talk about stuff, especially when, you know, that's the, that's stuff that we are not meant to like, we kind of began talking about, like, we're not uh, quite comfortable admitting is, is truly like a part of the grieving process. And it really is. It is worth feeling grief over. It is real. Um, you should feel empowered and knowing mm. that and feel like, you know, held in the fact that like your pain is valid as is everybody's, you know what I mean? And, um, it was really just so beautiful of you to share with everyone today about what you, what your experience has been. And we're so sorry for your hurting and your heartbreak, but we love you. And happy for your healing and all the healing yes. that you have and do. <laughs> Thank you. My gosh. I mean, for me, just to know that I could call and, and then I would get to talk to both of you. <laughs> it was really, yeah. you know, it was the first. It was just, yeah, the first place that I want to start to unpack these feelings in a more adult and like loving towards myself way. With you too, yeah, that's a good time to start unpacking them when you have like you know a place to put everything down. Mm. So, yeah, we love you, Lex, love you and both. thank you so much for coming on. And we'll see you soon. Okay, bye, bye, bye. Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new series on Heritage Radio Network called The Culinary Call Sheet, where we give a peek into the back kitchen of culinary media. I'm your host, April Jones. And I'm your co-host, Dara Bresnitz. Part of why we started this show was to offer an unofficial mentorship for anyone who is interested in learning about all aspects of food and video, whether that's TV, social media, online, or just something you want to do for fun. Absolutely. What was once niche or a little silly, as I'm sure you remember, Darren, when we started out. Yes, ma'am. Has now become such a massive playing field for so many creatives using food as the medium. It's something that has driven us professionally and personally for so many years. What excites me the most about this show is that we're going to sit down with some of the industry leaders to hear how they made it and what drew them into this industry. With 20 years in the culinary production game ourselves, we're hoping we can give, through these conversations, an insider's view into personal stories from the field, as well as an in-depth behind-the-scenes look into some of the most popular food programming in today's evolving culinary media landscape. We'll be covering everything from how to style your food, to how to license IP, to developing your own ideas, and some tips from the masters of how to host your own show. Yeah, it's a little bit of conversation, how to, and how do you do the things that you do in culinary media, which I'm so excited about. I love so many of the guests that are coming on this season. We have talent from Food Network, 
from Vice Media, Eater, Refinery29. We've met some of the best people in the world, both in front of and behind the camera. And we're bringing them all together to share their stories, their delicious adventure, and their unique journey into this crazy world. So to be the first to hear our episodes when they launch this fall, go to wherever podcasts are streaming and hit subscribe and make sure to give us a follow at the Culinary Call Sheet on Instagram. Processing is powered by Simplecast. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. Keep in touch at heritageradionetwork.org slash subscribe.